This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Tuesday the 8th of December and we've got a special Coronacast for you. We sure do. We have a special guest. With us today is virologist Dr Kirsty Short from the University of Queensland. Welcome, Kirsty. Thank you very much. We've got heaps of questions to put to you, Kirsty, but they all sort of cluster around a similar theme, which is about the vaccine and what it can and can't or has been proven to do and what it hasn't been proven to do. So one of the things that we've talked about quite a lot on Coronacast is the distinction between whether the vaccine can stop disease in someone who's infected with COVID or whether it can stop infection at all. Why would we even be making this distinction? Yeah, look, this is such an important distinction to make. And I think it's sometimes a nuance that gets lost in all the discussions of the various COVID-19 vaccines. The reason it's important to make this decision is because a vaccine that protects against just disease is great. And that's going to do a really, really important job in reducing the number of people that are hospitalised and really sick with COVID-19. But there is a risk that if the vaccine only protects against disease and doesn't protect against transmission. If you do sort of a staggered introduction of the vaccine into the population, you could have individuals who are vaccinated that potentially become sort of silent spreaders of COVID-19 insofar as they don't develop even maybe symptomatic disease, but if they can still be infected and transmit, they could pose a risk to unvaccinated individuals. So it's really something that we need to know and we need to watch and it's really something that we need to factor in into her, in terms of how the vaccine is rolled out in the community. And I suppose what people don't understand, and maybe to you and I don't understand either, is how you can get protection against disease and not against the virus. And I think it's it's a really good question and it comes down to a little bit of the anatomy of where the virus is infecting. So if you imagine that a vaccine protects really well uh, your lower respiratory tract, so here we're talking about your lungs, and that's really important because you can imagine that as soon as you start getting inflammation or virus replication in your lungs, you're going to get very sick. Now think about your upper respiratory tract in contrast, and that's sort of we're talking about your nose. Now, if you get viral replication in there, you might not get that sick because it's your nose, right? And that's not the primary site of gas exchange. But it might be really easy for the virus to transmit. So one scenario is if you have a vaccine that protects the lower respiratory tract very well, but not the upper respiratory tract, you could have a scenario where you have a vaccine that protects against severe disease, but it doesn't protect against disease transmission. But we do have vaccines which do protect the upper nose. I mean, measles is a classic example, is that the measles vaccine does protect you against infection with the measles virus in the nose and throat. Why is that different from coronavirus? Yeah, so this is just comes back down to different vaccines, different viruses. We do have some information from preclinical trials. So, for example, there was some non-human primate studies done with the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. And what they saw there is that it really did protect more against lower respiratory tract disease. And it induced a slight decrease in how the virus replicated in the upper respiratory tract or in the nose, but it didn't completely stop the virus from replicating there. So that's why this issue of transmission versus disease has been raised. So is it that it's not like the, the vaccine manufacturers are doing it like this on purpose, is it? Is the reason there are question marks around this because it's hard to measure? 
whether someone's infected or not? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the major vaccine trials that have been done in terms of the phase three trials, if we look at, say, the Moderna trials, the Pfizer trials and the Oxford AstraZeneca trials, two out of the three of those haven't sought to measure whether the vaccine protects against actual infection. And the reason for this is because exactly as you say, it's much harder to measure. So in order to measure protection from actual infection, you would need to be sampling individuals on a regular basis. And this is because most vaccines, they check if you've got disease or not by saying, okay, well, have you had any signs of illness like a fever or a cough? And that's really easy for people to record. But if you have an asymptomatic infection, the only way that can be detected is by constant sampling of the individual. So actually, the Oxford-AstraZeneca is doing this in a small subset of patients where they're doing weekly PCR tests. And that's what it takes to know if these individuals are just protected from infection or if they're protected from disease. So, and I think the Novavax vaccine, which is a different kind of vaccine, they're, they're doing it quite thoroughly too, but we haven't got the results of that yet. But everybody's saying that... Um, I mean, I'm sorry to be belabouring this, but we're getting a lot of questions about it. And people are being promised by politicians and others that the vaccine is the end of the pandemic, but it's not the end of the pandemic if it doesn't prevent infection. It, the pandemic could well continue. The common response I hear from vaccine manufacturers and epidemiologists is, well, we'll eventually find out by watching what happens. Will we actually, what do they actually mean by watching what happens once the vaccines roll out? Yeah, so this is through multiple different mechanisms, but you could imagine, I'll just give you a scenario. If you roll out the vaccine in a subset of the population, so say you vaccinate 5,000 individuals, 5,000 is a very low estimate. I'm talking about a very low population, a small village, let's go with. Then what you might see is that in the community, there's a decreased number of hospitalizations, but still in terms of the percentage in individuals who are infected, that doesn't change. So that's one way of finding this out. But I think the other thing to to touch on something that you said there, Norman, is that we shouldn't ever think that the vaccine, the day a vaccine is rolled out, that this is going to be the end of the pandemic. This is going to be a staggered process. And what you've got to remember with vaccines is really now what we're discussing is what we'd call the first generation of vaccines. These are the first vaccines that are rolled out. And Worst case scenario, if they do not protect against transmission, there will be a second generation and a third generation and we'll continue to improve upon these. So I think people should not think of the day a vaccine gets rolled out as the end of the pandemic, but it's a sign that things are going to get significantly easier because even if it doesn't protect against transmission, it's going to lower the mortality. And that's really, really important. So we put the call out to our listeners to ask us questions to ask you, Kirsty. And Jane has, is asking, what would the best practice public health policy and regulations look like with a vaccine that prevents disease versus a vaccine that prevents transmission? So I think that's a really, really key perspective. And, you know, I'll caveat this with I'm a, just a humble virologist and not an epidemiologist. <laughs> so apologies to all the epidemiologists out there if I'm verging into the wrong territory. But what I would say is I could imagine that a vaccine that doesn't prevent transmission but does prevent disease is not ideal for a phased rollout. So I could imagine a scenario if you said, okay, we're going to vaccinate healthcare workers because they're the individuals most at risk of severe disease. If the vaccine 
doesn't protect against transmission. You're potentially making healthcare workers um, silent spreaders to other individuals in the community who aren't vaccinated. So I would say if it is a vaccine that protects only against disease, it would be better to build up our manufacturing and then do a broad rollout where we can vaccinate the majority of the population. Now, in Australia, we have the luxury to do that because we don't have high COVID-19 infection rates. But in the situation in places like the US, I understand that that would be a very hard thing to to tell people to see that there's a vaccine available, but we need to wait while people are dying. So it does become a bit more complex. And another question, we've actually got this question from a couple of different people asking about what the effectiveness of the vaccine means in terms of Australia's ability to reopen its international borders. This is a really important question. And I think, again, we should not expect Australia's borders to open immediately upon vaccinations being licensed for use in in various countries. Because the reality is that there is a process and if, say, we've got one vaccine licensed for use in the UK, that does not mean that automatically all individuals in the UK are vaccinated. So it doesn't mean that we can say, okay, all people from the UK can come into Australia now. And again, it also means it's this, again, this question of disease versus transmission. So if we do have a situation where the vaccine only protects against disease, we have to sort of reevaluate how we gradually open up our borders because we don't want to have individuals coming in who are vaccinated, who are silent spreaders of the illness, and then coming into Australia, which is an unvaccinated and vulnerable community and potentially spreading COVID-19. So it does have a big impact on how we open up our borders. And that's why we have to not expect our borders to open immediately and just do this gradual process. If the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission, what's the point of Qantas and other airlines saying you have to be vaccinated to be allowed to fly? This is where the nuance comes in. And I think thus far we've talked about this in a little bit black and white terms, that the the vaccine will either prevent transmission or not prevent transmission. There is a possibility that it reduces the risk of transmission. So what that might mean is maybe if I'm vaccinated, my risk of transmitting to another individual, and if I'm infected, my risk of transmitting to another individual is significantly lower. It's not nil, but it's lower. And so in that context, yes, it would be useful to have regulations around vaccination of international travellers and so forth. Um, And certainly there's a precedent for that. If anyone in Australia knows, if they go to uh, certain South American countries, they can't come back into Australia without evidence of their yellow fever vaccine. So there is potentially a role for that to play. So, Kirsty, coming back to this idea of infection versus disease, when will we actually know that for sure? Well, that's a really good question, and I don't know if I have the exact answer to that. As was mentioned, so uh, the Chadox vaccine is doing this, uh, doing a specific trial, and that's the Oxford, that's the Oxford vaccine, which is the chimpanzee virus. Yes, it's no longer called Chadox. It's now got some complicated AV something something something. And Chadox stands for Chimpanzee Adenovirus Oxford. Yeah, so I think it's a very eloquent eloquent name, but um, yeah, that's not what it's called anymore, so I'm a bit out of date. But some of these vaccine trials are looking at this. I don't have the exact dates of when they're going to get that information. And it is also going to depend a little bit on how these vaccines are rolled out and when these vaccines are rolled out to the community. So I think I have to give you a bit of a wishy-washy answer there, Tegan, and say I, I don't really know. 
But like you said before, even if all they do is prevent disease, it's still going to be hugely protective for those people who would have otherwise gotten really severe disease and lessening that burden on the healthcare system. Yeah, and that's a really important thing. So I'll tell you what I've been telling my family who are in Melbourne and, you know, we're struggling during the lockdown, I would say. Um, 2021 is going to be a lot easier than 2020. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but all signs point to the fact that it's just going to be a bit of an easier year. Fascinating. Well, that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today. Kirsty Short, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And thanks for the great work, guys. I'm, I, I'm an avid listener of this podcast myself. Oh, glad we've got one. That's great. <laughs> so thanks very much. And thanks to all our Coronacast listeners. Yes, you've got more than one, just you know, one or two. But um, thanks to you all. If you want to ask a question or make a comment, go to abc.net.au slash Coronacast. Click on Ask a Question and mention Coronacast on the way through. And we'll pick it up. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you then. Thank you.